Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. All right, so today I'm concluding the series that began several weeks ago called Understanding Our Times, Developing a Biblical Worldview. And so I've been telling you all the way along here that the sons of Issachar had understanding of the times that they knew what Israel ought to do. And if we have understanding of the times, guess what? We'll know what to do. And the way you do that is you develop a biblical worldview. Worldview, I've been telling you, is the lens in which you view the world. And we all have one, and that's what we talked about in in week one. Week one, I went through the various, or at least some of the various worldviews, and talked about how vastly superior the biblical worldview is, because it brings everything into clarity and into focus. That was week one. Week two, I said, you'll never really understand the biblical worldview until you know who God is. And so we drilled down into the nature of who God was. Then last week, I talked about this bifurcation of the world that we live in into these two realms, the spiritual realm and the physical realm, and how they interact together, and how important it is for us to understand these two realms, and how we live in a dynamic tension between them. Now this week, we're going to talk about where are we going? On this journey called life, where are we going? And you know, you can't really understand where you're going unless you know where you're going. Don't you love that sort of profound stuff that I threw out there? How how do you remember Sylvester the Cat from Looney Tunes? Sylvester the Cat, anybody? Remember him? Suck-a-dash. I I love the way he talked. Uh, But he also had this song that he sung. Anybody remember this? You never know where you're going until you get there. How many you're tracking with me? You have to be older. Oh man, four of you, fantastic. Well, I'm glad I got a chance to sing to you. Uh, anyway, you never know where you're going until you get there. That was actually an old song back in the day. And if that is true, you're in big trouble. It was like Yogi Berra, the, the catcher for the New York Yankees. He used to say he had one of his malpropisms, and he used to say this, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else. And as weird and as convoluted as that is, it's kind of true. We need to know where we're going. So here's the key for me. I don't know if you know this, but every story, every novel, every play, every opera, everything that tells a story has one thing in common. They have three distinct parts, and they are a beginning, a middle, and an end. And aren't you glad you come to church and learn stuff like this? I mean, how would you know things like that if you didn't come to church? Beginning, middle, and end. Now, here's a challenge. If you don't know the end, if you only know the beginning and the middle, and you don't know the end, you actually don't have a clear picture. You don't really know what's going on. You you know how that works. You know, Kathy and I, I've been sharing some of my marital problems with you, and uh, particularly around the television. And so when we're watching a a movie together on TV... I do this all the time. We'll get about three quarters of the way through the movie, or there might be 10 or 15 minutes left, and I'll say, I'm going to bed. And she'll say, don't you want to see the end of the movie? And I go, I don't actually care how it ends. I don't care about these people. I don't care how it ends. Besides, I know how it's going to end. That He's going to kill the bad guy, and he's going to get the girl. Happens every time. So then I go to bed. The next day, I said, so what happened? She said, well, he killed the bad guy and got the girl. Now, that's true for movies. You can almost always predict the end of them. But this story of the Bible that we have, this story of the human journey that we're on, you don't actually know the end. 
You have to learn about it or you're not going to have a biblical worldview. We're very clear on the beginning in particular and the middle and not so clear on the end of the story. The, the beginning is really easy. I'll tell you why. It all takes place in three chapters in the book of Genesis. One, two, three, it's done, right? Genesis 1. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the sun, the moon, the stars. Creates this planet, fills with with flora and fauna. Puts a bunch of animals in it. That's chapter one. Chapter two, he makes a man, brings him a wife. And then he says to him, here's what I want you to do. Don't eat of the tree, which is in the fruit uh, or the midst of the garden. For in that day you shall surely die. That's chapter two. Chapter three, they're standing by the stupid tree, chowing down like a cop at a donut shop. And so that's the beginning of the story. And we know what happens. They plunge the entire humanity into chaos, and we're all bound for Satan for like thousands of years. So the beginning is in three chapters, and then we enter into the middle of the story, which is literally thousands of years of this elaborate, exquisite, interwoven story. It's fascinating. It's brilliant. It's actually a masterpiece, a tapestry of all these things woven together that brings us to the place where Jesus, the Messiah, comes to earth. Everything's setting up for that moment. He arrives. You know this story. He spends three short decades on this planet, three short years in ministry, and then he finally ends up at the cross. He's hanging on the cross, dying for our sins. He he breathes his last and says, it is finished. It is finished. The end. Is that the end? Turns out that wasn't the end. Looked like the end. Wasn't the end. It actually was a new start. It was a big twist in the plot. You know, you've all watched some of those like really long movies. They do like three hour movie. And at two hours into the movie, it looks like the movie ended. Looked like they concluded. And then there's some big twist in the plot, and it keeps going for another hour. You know those movies. James Cameron, every movie he ever makes, it just doesn't know when to quit, right? And so we look at this story of the scripture. We get to what we think is the end with Jesus on the cross. Everybody thought it was supposed to be the end. They were all expecting Jesus to wrap it all up. Turns out it wasn't the end. Turns out that was the middle. That was the middle, and everything changed. And so the end is something that we really need to focus on a little bit, because if we don't understand the end, we don't understand our biblical worldview. So here's the thing. The the end is far more complex than the beginning. Far more complex. I mean, you've read it. You looked in the book of Revelation. Did you understand any of it? Not much. You've got all these things going on. You've got the Antichrist, and you've got the beast, and you've got, you know, the mark of the beast, and you've got the four horsemen, you've got all these plagues, and you've got all this stuff happening. And, and you think, man, this is a complex story. And I certainly don't have time to go into all the complexities of, of the end times. But here's what we can do. We can take a few minutes today, and I can show you the significance, the importance of the end of the story to help inform your biblical worldview. So what we're going to do is we're going to look in Matthew chapter 24 because that's, we have the book of Revelation and we have the book of Daniel, but Matthew chapter 24 is Jesus' interpretation or his prediction of the last days and the end times. So we're going to look at what he has to say because he can really help us. I'm only going to pull a couple of little verses out and we're going to camp there. So here they are. We're in Matthew chapter 24, verse 34. This is what it says. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven 
and earth will pass away, but my words by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as in the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So, there's a lot of stuff in there. And I just want, just want to look at a few things. First of all, here's where we know that the end's going to be. The end wasn't when Jesus came the first time. The end is when Jesus returns. Isn't that right? Isn't that what he says? So that's the first thing we know, that there will be an end, but not until he returns. He says, then we can look for an end. The second thing he says is that you don't know the day and the hour. Now, why is this a big deal? Because people keep saying they know when Jesus is coming. You hear it all the time. They're talking about Israel. This is happening. That is happening. We know when Jesus is coming. We have people making predictions. Actually, for 2,000 years, men have been, and women have been making predictions as to the time when Jesus is going to return. And here's my question for you. If the angels don't know when he's coming, why do we think we know when he's coming? And, and I, this can be a big surprise to you. You know, throughout history, all these people that predicted a, a year when Jesus is going to return, they were all wrong. <laughs> they were all wrong. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses did it. The Mormons did it. The, uh, you know, the uh, Seventh-day Adventists did it. Various preachers throughout history have done it. They're all wrong because he says, you don't know. You don't know the day and the hour. The angels don't even know the day and the hour. The only guy who knows is God the Father in heaven, and he's not going to tell you. One of my favorite stories was... Uh, in 1988, Church of the Rock was only a year old, and there was this guy, his name was, was Edward uh, Wisnot, and he was a, uh, or Wisnot, and he was an aerospace engineer for NASA, and he wrote a book on the fact that Jesus was returning. It was saying 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988. And he actually sold 4.5 million copies. And he actually specified a date. The date was September 13th, 1988. Take a stab at it. What do you think happened on September 13th, 1988? Nothing. Nothing happened. He was wrong. So you know what he did? He wrote another book called 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1989. You know, you can only do that so many years in a row before you lose your credibility. You kind of get that, don't you? And I remember, this is what he did. He sent out 250,000 of these books to pastors. Every pastor in North America got one. So I got one of these books. It was fantastic because I got to discredit him for several weeks before uh, September 13th happened. It was so much fun. And you know where I went? This roast right here. That if the angels of heaven don't know, this dude certainly doesn't know. But that's maybe not even my favorite story. I, I think there's another one I think we all enjoy, and it was Y2K. <laughs> Remember Y2K? That was so cool, because the world was ending on January 1st, 2000. Do you remember why? Because the computers were not date compliant. The computers only went up to 1999. They hadn't thought it through. There was no 2000. And so what was going to happen on January 1st? Do you remember? 
We remember everything was going to crash. The electrical grid was going to go down. The gas pumps were going to stop working. ATM machines were not going to work. You wouldn't be able to get money. And you wouldn't be able to shop because the tellers wouldn't work. Those, the checkouts wouldn't work. The whole world was coming to the end. It was so much fun. People started to panic. And they, they were hoarding firewood and food and toilet paper. <laughs> What's the deal with toilet paper? How come that's always our first, first thought? What do I need? I need toilet paper. Look, if there's no food, you don't really need toilet paper now, do you? Right? You, we, under, we, under, we understand that, that cycle, right? Like, we, we all know how that works, right? You know, and everybody got all riled up about it, and, and I thought, oh, this is so much fun. And so you know what I did? Kathy and I hosted an end-of-the-world party. Right? Just before New Year's, we hosted this party, and you know what we did? We burned off the last of our firewood because I was making a point. The world wasn't ending on January 1st. I had a pastor friend of mine. Actually, I knew a bunch of pastors that were running out buying generators. And this one pastor friend said to me, he said, Mark, have you bought a generator? And I said, no, I'm going to wait till January and buy them when they're half price when everybody's trying to unload them. <laughs> moron. <laughs> I didn't call him moron. I was just thinking it. And so, so, when we look, so when we look at, when we look at the end, we, we don't actually know when he is coming. And we need to understand that y- you can't guess this, but here's the thing we need to remember is that it is going to happen. Let's be really clear about this. This world in which we live in will come to an end, right? He said this. He said, he said heaven and earth will pass away. This is a given. And this is why the scripture keeps telling us not to get too attached to this world. You, you realize that. Remember Jesus? What did Jesus say? He said, he said, you know, do not, what, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And John went a step further. John actually said this. He said, do not love the world or the things in this world. And so what happens is we get so attached to this world and we cling on to it with, with, with so dearly And what Jesus is telling us here, and Peter confirms, you can go read about it, in 2 Peter, he says the world that was was destroyed by water, and he said the world that is will be destroyed by fire. So the world is going to expire, so let's not get too attached to it. That's my point. Now, I think there's probably a good point to ask a question, do a little sidebar, and ask this, what is the biblical worldview of the environment there for? And it's sort of fascinating because in the Christian circles, there's two very diverse camps on this. You can go online, you can read this up, and, and you'll find this one group of people, and they're saying, it is the Christian's responsibility to be leading the environmental movement. That is their responsibility. And then way over on the other side, there's this group of people and saying, what the heck does it matter? We're all going up in smoke anyway. What's the difference? <laughs> That's a pretty diverse view from that. And so the question is, which one of those is true? And see, here's what I always like to do. I always think, you know, normally when we're looking for the biblical worldview, it's neither A nor B, it's almost always C. There is almost always a third way. And let me tell you what the third way is, our response to the environment. And it's one word, stewardship. See, if you look into scripture, 
God gave us this principle right from the beginning to the end, and it's called stewardship. Everything he gives us, he expects us to be good stewards of and to take care of. He gives you a family, guess what? He expects you to take care of it. He gives you livestock, he expects you to take care of it. He gives you lands, go read the Old Testament. He expects you to take care of those lands. Everything he has entrusted us to, we are supposed to be good stewards to it. So you know what that means? That we need to be good stewards of this planet. That we as Christian people... We need to be incredibly uh, environmentally conscious. The world needs to look at us and go, the Christian people actually do care, and they're environmentally conscious. Now, here's the other side of it. That does not mean we should fall into this thing called climate alarmism. And I'll tell you why. That is a religion. Climate alarmism is a religion because they have no other hope other than this planet, so they have to save this, pl- save this planet. And what happens is when you fall into that, you end up into this eco-fanaticism, you end up in this desperation where they will do anything, everything, no matter how irrational it is to save the planet because they have no other hope. We have another hope. We actually going to take care of the planet, but we know that it's got, actually got an expiry date. Are you following this? And so we look at what's happening around us, and there's some crazy stuff that's going on. I mean, even in our own nation of Canada, you, you see this climate alarmism. We have an environment ministry that minister that has said that we shouldn't build any more roads in Canada. We have a half a million immigrants coming into our country every year. We have nowhere for them to live, and now we're going to make sure they have nowhere to drive their car. There's something really wrong with this. Do you know that there's a, a private member's bill before the House? Uh, it, it is so crazy. It is to criminalize anybody that speaks against climate change or that speaks positively of fossil fuels. And he's proposing a $1.5 million fine and two years in prison. He really believes in free speech, this guy. Now, understand, it's not going to pass, but this is a picture of the absolute idiocy we see in this movement. There's something gone wrong with it. So yes, we're good stewards, but no, let's not fall into the excessiveness about it. So let me, can I give, take a moment and give you my pet peeve on this? Do you have a minute? Or are you busy? <laughs> I'm going to give you my biggest pet peeve. You know what it is? Ethanol gas. Ethanol gas is the biggest fraud and the biggest scam that's ever been perpetrated on the consumer in North America, I'm telling you. And here's what, here's what we know about it. It takes almost as much energy to produce ethanol as it actually contains. But the worst part of this story is they now, the recent studies are telling us, it actually, by the end of the whole story, emits 24% more carbon than burning gasoline. I know some of you are saying, well, how could that possibly be? It doesn't give off carbon when you burn it. Well, let me explain it to you. Most ethanol comes from corn in North America. Now, how do you grow corn? Anybody know how you grow corn? You put massive amounts of fertilizer on it. Where do you think fertilizer comes from? Fossil fuels. And then you run up and down these fields with these tractors and these combines and these sprayers and pickers and everything else. And what do you think those tractors and combines run on? fossil fuels. And then when you harvest the corn, you may or may not know this if you're not a farmer. You just can't store it until you dry it. And what do you think those dryers, those grain dryers are run by? Fossil fuels. And then they have to load it into these trucks to head down the the, the highway to an ethanol plant. And what do you think those trucks run on? Fossil fuels. And then it gets to the ethanol plant and they have to distill it into, into ethanol alcohol. And what do you think they use to distill it? Fossil fuels. 
I'm telling you, it's, it's, a, it's an insane process. And you know, you go, you go to the gas pump. Here's a picture. You go to the gas pump, and you see that, that, that cob of corn on the gas pump. And you think, oh, I'm saving the planet. I'm putting pure Mazzola corn oil right into my tank. And the more I drive, the more I'm saving the planet. That's what they would love you to believe. But in fact, it's just absolutely not true. I remember the first time I ever drove by an ethanol plant. I don't know if you've ever seen one. And we were in, on the interstate in Iowa, and I had to stop and look at it. This is, what, this is what it looked like. And I looked at that plant, and this is what I thought. I'll tell you what I thought. Mm, no. <laughs> That's what I was saying. No. And I'll, and I'll tell you, the particular one I saw, there was actually boxcars full of black coal that were firing the plant to distill this. I, I'm, I'm telling you, there's something. You say, well, what's going wrong here? I'll tell you what's going wrong. It is a collusion between the agricultural lobby and corrupt politicians to perpetrate something on you that is not going to save the environment. It's been proven, and yet here we are, decades later, still burning the stupid stuff that doesn't barely even work in your car. Now, there, I could give you story after story after story, but here's what happened. The green movement has been commandeered by corrupt government and greedy co- corporations. And if, <laughs> uh, I'm glad I'm not saying anything controversial today. Uh, but if, there's ever, if you ever want to watch a documentary on this, I really recommend this. Every person should watch this. It was produced by Jeff Gibbs and Michael Morris called Planet of the Humans. He goes through all some of this stuff I'm talking about, about this corruption and this greed and how they've taken over the green movement and how many things aren't green. These two dudes, let me be clear about this, they are environmentalists. And they don't like the fact that their industry, their environmental industry, has been taken over by these faceless corporations that are perpetrating this fraud and this lie upon you. So anyway, that's just a little sidebar. Here's where I want you to go. We need to take care of this planet. Trust me. It's important for us to be good stewards of this planet. But let's just not get too attached to it. Because this is what the the hymn says. You all remember it. And, And it says, The things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We have a much bigger inheritance. So I guess you probably realize maybe by this point that I'm kind of giving you a bad news good news message. Some of you are wondering when the good news is coming. I'm not finished with the bad news quite yet, and uh, I'll get to the good news. Uh, so let me, let me share, the, share this with you. Uh, I have these, this joke I tell, and it's a bad news, good news, or good news, joke, bad news. It's the same joke. I can tell it either way. And I'm going to tell it to you because inquiring minds need to know. And so here's the, here's the, the good news, bad news version of it. So this guy goes to the doctor, and the doctor says to him, uh, so I got good, bad news for you. No, I, let me get this right. I, even I get confused with this joke. I have good news for you. Uh, the disease is incurable, it's fatal, and you have 24 hours to live. He says, that, that, that's, that's the good news? If that's the good news, what could possibly be the bad news? He says, well, the bad news is I meant to call you yesterday. <laughs> and then there's the bad news, good news version of the same joke, and it goes like this. The doctor says, I've got some bad news for you. Your disease is incurable, you're going to die, and you've got 24 hours to live. And so the guy says, that's, that, that's the bad news? What, what good news could you possibly have for me? He says, the good news is, we're going to name the disease after you. <laughs> So here's what I want to tell you that's kind of bad news, but I will get to the good news very quickly here. And it is, it is this. 
We would love to, I would love to tell you that the world is going to become a better and better and better place, and then Jesus is going to return, and we're going to celebrate our great success together. But everything in the scripture tells us that is not the case. And everything in the scripture tells us that the world's actually going to become worse and worse and worse. And Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24. I hate to point it out to you, but go read it. He says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have tribulation, but don't worry about it, because after the tribulation, you're going to have great tribulation. And then he goes on and says, but don't worry about that, because he says, I have to cut these days short. They're so bad, or no one will survive. That sounds like pretty, pretty bad news to me. And then in this particular verse that we're in, hang with me here, in this particular verse we're in, he compares the return of Christ when he's coming to what? The days of Noah. He says it's going to be like in the days of Noah. How many of you remember the days of Noah? That was like pretty, that was pretty bad. Like how bad was it? It was so bad that he had to destroy the whole human race and do a factory reset. The world had become so corrupt and so polluted that he had to destroy it all and start with Noah and his family and start the whole process over again. They had gone too far. That's pretty bad. And here we have Jesus saying, this is what the end is going to look like, like the days of Noah. Now, the days of Noah were probably far worse than most of you realize. You go read about it, Genesis chapter 6, you read this crazy story. I don't know how else to describe it. And it, and it talks about the sons of God impregnating the daughters of men. It's talking about fallen angels, demons, impregnating women, and producing a race, some sort of mixed race. We call them giants, but that's not the right word. It says they were men of great stature, but the word that is used in Scripture is the word Nephilim. And Nephilim means literally the fallen one. And my best guess is that the Nephilim were actually demons in human, huge human bodies. And the earth world had literally become polluted. The human race had literally become polluted. You can go read about it in the book of Jude. You go read about it. He talks about the angels that did not keep their proper domain and are held for judgment in eternal chains. That's what the, you go read about it. So he, he talks about this crazy, crazy season and so we wonder, what are these Nephilim? We know they're of great stature. We, we, we think, for the best we know, that they're somehow like these demonic humans. And I don't know if you've seen this picture. This, this is an old carving, an ancient carving of what they may have looked at. I thought, there's got to be something online that would be a more modern depiction. And I, and I came up with this. I think this, I think this is it. <laughs> I think the Scorpion King. That, that, that's who it was. And I mean, you know, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, he's, he's one big dude. I mean, look at this picture. Here he is standing beside an otherwise normal-sized human being, right? And, and, and you know what he's saying? You can see his lips are moving. What is he saying? He's saying, should I eat him? That, that's, what, that's what he's saying. And, and they're good friends. I mean, Kevin Hart, he's not going to eat Kevin Hart. Well, maybe the world would be a better place if he did. I don't know. But <laughs> I'm kidding, people. I'm kidding. But, but, it, but the world became so corrupt that God had to destroy it. And Jesus is saying, it's going to be like that. It's going to be like in the days of Noah. This is bad news. And he says, they'll be eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. And I just can't help thinking maybe something to do with this sexual and marital and gender imbroglio that we're in today. Maybe that's some part of it. I don't know. But nevertheless, it's, it's a terrible situation. But you say, Pastor Mark, you're scaring me. I know. 
That's my plan today. Remember I told you it was a bad news, good news message? You say, well, what's the good news? Are you going to get to that? Yeah, here's the good news. You ready for the good news? I've read the end of the book. We win. <laughs> we win. I'm not worried about us at all because he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I've read the end of the book. We win, people. We're on the winning side. Isn't that good? I, I got a great story for you. So there's this, this Mennonite church and uh, their rivals in, with their baseball team is the Baptist church. You know, Mennonites and Baptists, you know what they're like. And so they're having this, this big game the next Saturday and the pastor really, really wants to beat the Baptists this year. So he goes to the captain of the Mennonite team and he, and he says, Abe, I'm going to give you 300 bucks and I want you to use this 300 bucks and, and use it for whatever you need to do to win this. New equipment, new bats, new balls, whatever you need, you need to win this game. So he gives them the 300 bucks. So the next Saturday... The Mennonites absolutely demolished the Baptists. And the pastor was so excited with his win. And he went up to the, the captain of the team and he said, so, so Abe, where's the new equipment I, I thought you were going to buy? He said, no, you said to use the $300 to do whatever we needed to do to win. And so I bribed the umpire. Okay, I've amused myself there, left. <laughs> so here, we're going to round this up, and you're going to be pretty happy about this. So let's talk about this. So this is what Jesus did when he came. He turned everything upside down on his first coming. And what he did was he inaugurated the kingdom of God. Now, you probably know this, that he talked more about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, or literally means the kingdom from heaven. He talked more about that than any other subject. And what Jesus did was he lived not by the rules of this world, but somehow he was not bound to the limitations of this world because he tapped into the powers of the kingdom of heaven. So, for example, when he came across water, he could just walk on that water. When he came across water, he could turn it into wine. He could multiply loaves and fishes and feed thousands of people. He could heal the sick. He could raise the dead. He could cleanse the lepers. He could cast demons out of people that were demonized. And he told us why. He said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Did you catch that? He says, the reason I can do this and the other things I do is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom from heaven has come upon you. So you go into the book of Matthew. You're going to have to really pay attention for the next five minutes here. So you go into the book of Matthew and you see this, this thing unfold. So first of all, you see John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. And he begins his message with these words. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then in Matthew 4, you see Jesus begin his ministry. And he begins with these words. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Matthew 10, you see the disciples begin their ministry. And they began with repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What do you think those verses are trying to tell us? Thank you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But here's the big question. What does that actually mean? What does it mean the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Does that mean the kingdom of heaven is here? Or does that mean the kingdom of heaven is coming? You know what the answer to that question is? Yes. Yes. The kingdom is here, but the kingdom is coming. Now, like I said, you're going to have to pay attention this next few minutes. I'm going to show you a few scriptures here. First one, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But know this, that in the last days, say last days, that in the last days perilous times will come. So in the last days 
Perilous times will come. I already told you that. That's the bad news. We're living in the last days, and perilous times have come and are coming and are going to continue to get worse. But look at this. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. It shall come to pass in the last days, say last days, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So again, we have the last days, we have perilous times, but we have something. And that is the fact that he's going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And something has changed. Stick with me here. Galatians chapter 1. Paul says this, that God will deliver us from this present evil age. Say present evil age. Present evil age. So he's describing the world we live in as the present evil age. Ever since the fall of Adam, we have lived in the present evil age. But then in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer says this, that we will taste of the powers of the age to come. Say the age to come. So uh, we have the present evil age. We have the age to come. And then we have something called the last days. What is the last days? The last days is the overlap between the present evil age and the age to come. And that period of time is called the last days. And throw it up. Here's my visual of it. Here's the last days. From Adam to the second coming. That is the present evil age in which we live right now. But the age to come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, came at the day of Pentecost where he sent his spirit upon all of us. And we see that the powers of the age to come now became accessible to people living in the present evil age. And that's why he said in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So all of a sudden, everything has changed. Though the present evil age carries on, we now have access to the powers of the age to come. And you read in the, in the book of Acts, and we see that everything changed for them. All of a sudden, they were starting to do the things that Jesus did as he walked on the earth, right? We see them casting out demons like the woman with the, the spirit of divination. Think of this story. It's John or Acts chapter 3. And John and Peter are going up to the, to the temple at the beautiful gate. And there's a man, the beggar, who's lame. And he's sitting there asking for alms. And Peter says, silver and gold have I not. But what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he grabbed that man and he leapt to his feet. What were they doing? They said, look, I don't have the resources of this world. But I have the resources of the age to come. And this man who had been sitting there for decades leapt to his feet and the whole community knew. Why? Because the powers of the age to come had come to bear on the present evil age. You look through the book of Acts, it happens again and again and again. One of my favorite stories is Acts chapter 14. We have Paul. He's preaching in the city of Lystra and they stone him. And they drag him, stone him to death, and they drag him out, and he's lying there stoned. Now understand, in those days, stoned means something different than it means now. You you know that. And, And he's lying dead. And the disciples all gather around him, looking at him. He's dead. And what did he do? Who remembers what he did? He got up. He got up to his feet. Now, I'm imagining this part of the story, but I'm imagining, ow, that really hurt. Now, don't think for a minute it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt, but they couldn't kill him. And who remembers what he did next? Who who knows? He went back into the city of Lystra. Why? Because he wasn't done yet. And you know what? 
The devil can't kill you if you're not done yet. And you know what? A bunch of you people, you're not done yet. Some of you haven't even barely started, but you're certainly not done yet because your life is in God's hands and nobody can snatch them out. And let me tell you where the big answer of this thing is, people. It is in this one little prayer that Jesus gave us. The powers of the age to come, coming to the present evil age. You know where you find it? The Lord's Prayer. He says, when you pray, say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have accesses to the resources of heaven to bring to bear on the present evil age. You can walk in victory. You can walk in triumph. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. And if God be for you, who can be against Let's stand together, shall we? All right, I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads, close your eyes just for a moment. I told you you were going to have to pay attention at the end of that message. You got that, right? And I know there's people here, and you've never invited Jesus into your life to be your Lord and Savior. You haven't joined this journey that we're on. And you're not sure that you can overcome the present evil age and you know all about it because you're living in it. And we do this every week in this church. We ask everybody to bow their heads. We ask everybody to close their eyes. And we give people an opportunity that haven't made that decision to follow Jesus to come and join us on this journey because it's a journey of victory and it's a journey of triumph and it's a journey of overcoming the, the, the struggles of this world. And if you haven't joined this journey, meaning you haven't invited Christ into your life, to be your Lord and Savior. I want to give you a chance to do that today. Won't call you forward. Not going to single you out. Right where you are. If you're not sure, you're on your way to heaven. I want you to just slip up your hand right where you are. Right where you are. And I'm going to pray with you. You won't have to come forward or say anything. Just take a moment. Thank you. Hands going up around the room. Just take a moment. I'm not going to call you forward. It's going to be super easy. Anybody else? Lots of hands today. That's fantastic. Wonderful. There's a few more people that need to say yes to this. I'm going to just wait for you just for a moment. I know that God's stirring your heart. Great. All right. You can all lower your hands. So I said I wouldn't sing you an out, so we're all going to do this together. You ready? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. That you died for my sin. And you washed it all away. Then you rose from the dead to give me life and a life more abundantly. You rose from the dead to give me access to the powers of the age to come. You rose from the dead that I might have your spirit come upon me during these last days and that I could live a life of victory and triumph in the knowledge of you and a biblical worldview. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give the Lord a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.